back to Lighting the Pipes Noir. My name is Joshua Taylor, and I will be your host as we investigate another entry into that morally ambiguous, violent, stylish, and seductive world that is film noir. In the previous episode, I went over the aesthetics of film noir. I provided, based on my own education and research, the key influences. British and American detective fiction, German expressionist cinema, the early sound horror films of Universal, the social justice gangster films produced by Warner Brothers, and briefly, touch on the po briefly touched on the poetic realist films of French cinema. We learned that these aesthetic touches culminated with the production of Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, when cinematographer Greg Toland, of whom I did not mention to my undying shame, developed stronger lenses that could deliver the depth of field that Welles was seeking. This allowed the silent era camera fluidity that had become impaired by the bulky nature of talkie cameras since the innovation of sound technology to return to form. Citizen Kane also brandished the chiaroscuro lighting practices used by the, Germans, by the German expressionists and the poetic realists to give that shadowy, foreboding, and fatalistic effect to the proceedings. This resulted in Citizen Kane not just being received as a critical success, but as a technological feat in terms of cinematic storytelling. This, John Huston realized, this, his DOP, Arthur Edison realized, and this they utilized to great success with the Maltese Falcon in 1941. In terms of the quote-unquote canon, as per cinema historians, the Maltese Falcon was no rare bird. It is considered the first film noir, and not surprisingly, it had its imitators. It kick-started a movement in Hollywood cinema that permeated across the big three studios and trickled all the way down to the Poverty Row picture factories. Over the, next 20, over the next 20 years, but particularly after the end of World War II, up until the early 1960s, Hollywood churned out films that pushed the envelope, worked around the Hayes office in terms of censorship, where filmmakers could entertain but espouse their cynical worldview through these exciting stories. As for this podcast, I have no desire to advance chronologically through the established canon, and while I have been consuming noirs at a vast rate this past year, I won't be moving on to, say, Paramount's 1942 combo punch of Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake in This Gun for Hire and The Glass Key. Instead, I will pick and choose. The motivation behind these selections will be completely arbitrary. The selection may be topical, it may simply be whatever tickles my fancy. But I can promise you something different and unexpected with each episode. This will be the method to my madness going forward. So take this as a preface, if you will, because this episode is all about Laura. Laura who, you ask? Laura is a woman's name, obviously, and the titular character of the film Laura. Directed by Otto Preminger and starring Jean Tierney, Dana Andrews, Clifton Webb, Vincent Price, yes, that Vincent Price, and Judith Anderson, Laura was produced by the indomitable Daryl F. Zanuck and released by 20th Century Fox Studios in 1944. 
While several individuals worked on the screenplay, Laura was based off the novel by Vera Kasperi, which I confess I have not read. It is Kasperi's most well-known work, even amongst the various plays, screenplays, and short stories she had written throughout her career. Kasperi was an early feminist. Her heroines were ambitious and independent, and were neither damsel in distress nor victim. And of course, the last word there, victim, is integral to the plot of Laura, another one of Kasperi's merging of her ideal woman's quest for identity with that of the aesthetics of the murder mystery. Very admirable and progressive indeed, but the man who would later direct its film adaptation, Otto Preminger, had some changes in mind to the original text. Especially the premise that the entire film should focus solely on a female protagonist. To this end, Caspery was already making ends meet as a screenwriter in Hollywood, but it wasn't until the work dried up that she took her screenplay, Ring Twice for Laura, in an entirely different direction and decided to publish as a novel instead. The book was more than a modest hit. In fact, the big names you would see in the director's chair were interested in purchasing the rights, but they could not find a producer to back it. Enter Otto Preminger. Now, Otto was born to a Jewish family December 5th, 1905, in Vixnitz, Austria-Hungary, in the province of Bukovina, in what is now uh, Vinitsia, Ukraine. Following the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, Russia sided with Serbia and invaded Bukovina. The Premingers fled, like many did, to Austria, first to Graz and Styria, where his father was offered a high commission in the government on the grounds he converted to Catholicism. His father refused and opened up a law practice in Vienna. It is here that Preminger developed a love for the theater and a love for clashing with authority figures. In this case, his father, who wished for his sons to perpetuate the family firm. For his first act of defiance, Preminger studied under the great theatrical troupe belonging to Max Reinhardt, where he honed his craft as an actor and as a director of various plays. Foreshadowing a later relationship, Preminger began to defy his mentor Reinhardt and broke off on his own, directing his own plays for the Viennese theatrical scene as well as a local theater in nearby Ostik. Decades later, Preminger would hold sway over his reputation as a trailblazer in presenting controversial topics in Hollywood cinema, in films like Anatomy of a Murder. Sound familiar? We did cover it on Lighting the Pipes. And Advise and Consent, to name a few. It was here in Osig where he directed several plays that tested taboos. Some of these productions were both sexually provocative for their time as well as politically charged. In 1930, he was commissioned to direct his first feature film, The Great Love. Despite the film's positive reception, Preminger found no passion for cinema and returned to the theater. It was around this time, in April 1935, only a couple years before the Nazis would annex his foster country, that Preminger was summoned by one Joseph Schenk to the American Hotel in Vienna. Preminger met with Schenk and his partner, a name well known to classical Hollywood, Daryl F. Zanuck. Both men were co-founders of 20th Century Fox Studios, and they were scouting for directorial talent. It took less than a half hour for Preminger to agree to work with Fox. Preminger got right down to business. He directed films with consummate professionalism, demonstrating efficiency by staying within budget and completing his films before the scheduled shooting deadline. Now here's where it gets interesting. In late 1937, Zanuck chose Preminger to direct his marquee project, an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped. One day, during the screening of recently shot footage, Zanuck noticed some slight changes to his scene that did not match what was scripted. 
Preminger, his defiant nature seething below, kept his cool and informed Zanuck that he shot the scene as scripted. When Zanuck returned and adamantly stated that he knew his own script, a heated argument blew up in Zanuck's office. Well, a few days later, Preminger was surprised to find the locks of his office door changed, as well as his name taken down. One of Zanuck's emissaries soon revealed themselves and offered Preminger a buyout. Zanuck was done with Otto Preminger. Preminger refused the buyout, demanding what was left of his contract to be paid out to him. He was done with Zanuck and Fox, at least for the time being. He returned to his passion, the theater, lending his talents to Broadway as well as lecturing on acting and theatrical direction twice a week at Yale. Meanwhile, Vera Caspery had no luck getting financial backing for Laura. She collaborated with Joseph Sklar on a screenplay around the same time when Daryl Zanuck was called to serve his country. William Getz took Zanuck's place as interim studio head of 20th Century Fox, and with Zanuck no longer in the picture, called Preminger back into the fold, offering him a seven-year contract. Preminger accepted this, and while settling in, came across Caspery's Laura script. He called a meeting with Caspery and Sklar, and this is where our history comes full circle, as he wanted to make substantial changes to the picture, including eschewing Laura Hunt as the protagonist and placing the main focus on the villain, Waldo Lidecker. Caspery was poleaxed. Caspery had Marlon Dietrich on the line to star in a Broadway version of Laura, so in light of this revelation, to have her proto-feminist heroine usurped by her tormentor, she easily rejected Preminger's offer. Unfortunately, the Dietrich Broadway dream was also scarce of financial backing and fizzled out. She took the studio buyout of 30000 for the rights and called it a day. Laura was now at the top of Preminger's slate, and he recruited from the Fox writer's bullpen to find someone to write the screenplay. In total, the film Laura was crafted from Caspery's novel, her own screenplay, and then adapted by three writers to reach its final Preminger-approved form. Enter stage left Daryl F. Zanuck returning from duty to find his old adversary had made himself quite comfortable. He knew that he couldn't fire Preminger due to the contract Gitz had signed him to, but he refused to give Preminger creative control. He allowed Preminger to produce the film, but not to direct. Zanuck obtained an old veteran, Ruben Mamoulian, who worked through the early sound period in the 30s and had some acclaim with Blood and Sand in 1941. Mamoulian was Zanuck's man, however, Zanuck was intent on John Hodiak for Mark McPherson, Jennifer Jones as Laura Hunt, and Laird Krieger as Waldo Lidecker. Krieger was known for playing villains in films like This Gun for Hire and recently at the time in the film The Lodger. Preminger fought this as hard as he could. In his view, choosing an actor who was primarily typecast for villains would be like pointing a neon sign to the audience that Waldo was the killer, especially since in The Lodger, Krieger played none other than Jack the Ripper. Preminger aimed for casting Broadway veteran Clifton Webb as Waldo Lidecker. Webb had not worked behind a camera since 1930, but he was a Broadway staple and a gifted performer. Preminger found himself in Houston's shoes when the latter discovered Sidney Greenstreet in that small Broadway production and cast him as the heavy Casper Gutman. But unlike Houston, Preminger had obstacles to overcome, mainly Zanuck and that the casting director found Webb too effeminate as Lidecker, Laura's former lover. Undaunted, Preminger shot footage of Lidecker on stage, a Noel Coward play of all things, and ran the reel for Zanuck. Embittered but enlightened, Zanuck knew a sure thing when he saw it. He begrudgingly approved Webb. In addition, Zanuck acquiesced to the casting of Preminger's choices for the leads, Dana Andrews and Jean Tierney. 
Andrews hailed from Louisiana with a musical and theater background, but he was able to bury his twang to play McPherson. Jean Tierney descended from elite Brooklyn social circles to cut a career in Hollywood. She had some money behind her, but more importantly, a face that was of even greater value. The brunette debutante had some bit parts here and there, and while she wasn't an ingenue, she was not yet a big name either. At least not yet. Next came 20th Century Fox standby, the tall, dark, and handsome Brit Vincent Price as gold digger Kentuckian Shelby Carpenter. And best known for her role as Miss Danvers in Alfred Hitchcock's gothic romance-slash-murder mystery Rebecca, veteran stage actress Judith Anderson was cast as jealous socialite Anne Treadwell. The filming began on April 27, 1944, and things were not off to a good start. Mamoulian gave no support to Turney or Andrews and was near contemptuous of Webb. Webb had never filmed a talkie before and needed direction to transition from the stage to the screen, but Mamoulian wasn't giving it, and the Daily Rush's screen before Zanuck were bleak because of it. A meeting was called between Zanuck, Preminger, and Mamoulian, and once again things got heated. But in the service of the greater gods of Hollywood, Zanuck agreed that the production required a subtler approach and offered up Mamoulian and his own pride to those dark forces. Mamoulian was fired and Preminger was hired. Preminger proved to be both efficient, commanding, and a tad authoritarian. This bullish reputation to drive his actors to their breaking point and his short leash with the crew was a hurdle to overcome, but in the end, the crew and actors were simply grateful to be directed in some fashion that they surrendered to Preminger's vision and fell in line. This was but a foreshadowing to what other casts and crews would be up against with Preminger in the future. But in the present, with Mamoulian gone, Preminger hired a new DOP, Joseph Lachelle, as well as a new production designer, one that would follow his lead. For the infamous portrait of Laura hanging on the wall of her apartment, Mamoulian's wife had painted a portrait, but Preminger took it down on the grounds that it was not ethereal enough. A photograph of Jean Turney was then blown up, filtered with oils and framed. This portrait is near Gothic, an image that haunts and seduces. Laura completed principal photography on June 29, 1944, within budget and on time. Preminger screened the first cut of the film before Zanuck and his Yes Men committee. They were not happy with the results and requested for the ending to be altered. The ending he conceived wherein everything that happened was merely a fever dream of Lidecker's. Right. Perhaps he had seen Fritz Lang's The Woman in the Window, or was this simply an egotistical way of putting Preminger in his place? The new ending was shot immediately. The second screen did not go as Zanuck had hoped, however. Walter Winchell, the famous Hollywood gossip journalist as well as the biggest broadcaster of his day, rained accolades on the picture but straight up told Zanuck that he must change the ending. Defeated, Zanuck scrapped the alternate ending and handed the laurels to Preminger. This is your success. I concede. But Preminger did not concede. Not yet. The film was now in post-production and the final pieces of the Laura puzzle needed to be put in their proper place. One of these pieces was the score. David Raxon was given this honor, but Preminger was keen on using Duke Ellington's sophisticated lady for the signature motif. Raxon was against the idea, and before Preminger blew his stack, Alfred Newman, the music director for 20th Century Fox, calmed the waters by convincing Preminger to give Raxon a chance, but Raxon only had the weekend to come up with something. It would be a memorable weekend for Raxon. He had this deadline on top of a letter from his wife telling him it was over. This inspired that sweeping yet melancholy main theme that we all know and love, even if you haven't seen the film. Preminger was more than satisfied with Raxon's piece, and they would collaborate on four more films. Happily, Preminger was able to work with Duke Ellington in the future. 
budgeted for 1.02 million, numbers adjusted to inflation, of course. Laura was a critical and financial success for Preminger and 20th Century Fox. Preminger would continue to work, pushing his cast and crew in the proverbial envelope until he retired. Tierney and Andrews became Hollywood legends overnight. Price would continue as contract player for Fox, but would later join Hammer Horror Films to become the master of horror we all know and love. Clifton Webb would continue to flirt with Hollywood, but was typecast as an effete intellectual the majority of the time. He was nominated an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Waldo Lidecker, but Laura only garnered one of those. Joseph Lachelle's impeccable work won for Best Black and White Cinematography. Laura's legacy endured. Its main theme became iconic, and in 1999, the film was chosen by the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, where it has now been preserved, a standout in the annals of film noir and American cinema. But now it's time to put Laura to the test. As mentioned in the previous episodes, I'll be pulling from these three main criteria, plot, performance, and atmosphere. Plot is the story, the narrative, the quality of the screenplay, its pacing. Performance is, of course, an analysis of the film's acting. Atmosphere is the use of cameras, sound, score, and production design. Each of these are rated out of five, giving us a total of 15 as a final score to the film. Now, starting out, we have discussed the plot twist at the end of Laura's second act already in this episode. But at its core, it's it's a contrivance not unheard at the time, especially in detective fiction. What makes this twist distinguish itself from others is how it is woven organically into the narrative. This was accomplished by subtly planting the seeds of Laura's resurrection prior to the big reveal. In the first third of the film, we as an audience undergo a routine homicide investigation. We meet Laura only through her portrait in the opening credits and through what Waldo Lidecker and Treadwell, Shelby Carpenter, and her maid Bessie tell us about her. We are very much holding the same amount of diegetic information as Detective Mark McPherson. From the very beginning, we find ourselves, like McPherson, marveling over Waldo's collection, contemptuous of his vanity, and like Mark, tolerate Waldo because he is such an interesting figure and a possible suspect. Like Mark, we make our assessments whether we believe Anne or Shelby or Lidecker, and we only know about lore as much as what Mark is able to observe. The writing adheres to this logic, as the only way we can glimpse Laura, the murder victim, is the portrait in her apartment or in a flashback testimony from Waldo. Mark is stoic and outwardly disinterested at first. We see him unimpressed by Lidecker and making notes to himself as the investigation proceeds. But as he learns more about Laura, the investigation stirs something within. You can hear the wheels turning in Dana Andrews' performance. Consider when he first enters Laura's apartment, he views the crime scene analytically until Waldo points out the portrait of Laura on the wall. Not bad, he admits in a tone of amicable surrender, but carrying an expression that indicates that he has been taken out of his procedural reverie. Suddenly, the plastic baseball game in his pocket doesn't have the same appeal for him. One can then assume he is listening with rapt attention to Waldo's Laura exposition yearn, from their meet-cute to their lives together up to the moment of the night Laura was killed. This is when we first see Jean Tierney as Laura, and it's a credit to her performance and her beauty that we are as enthralled with Mark with her looks, her generous nature, and her moxie. For a relative newcomer, Tierney portrays the stubborn young career woman just out of her teens with a mix of annoying and likable. We understand why Waldo is so dismissive of her and why she manages to infect him with her grace so that he seeks her out after rebuffing her. In each subsequent scene in the flashback, Tierney, just in her tone of speech and body language, evolves from Girl Friday to advertising executive phenom. 
We see her girlish happiness with Lidecker gradually deteriorate into mere toleration as his possessiveness bears down on her. All of this told by Waldo to Mark as they sit down at a crowded restaurant and after cutting to these establishing moments with Laura to cutting back to the two men now with a bottle of wine on the table as the only remaining customers, confirming that both we, the audience, and Mark McPherson have drank deep of Laura Hunt. Shortly afterwards, Mark finds himself once again in Laura's apartment. Waldo is shocked to see him there, reasons, of course, that has nothing to do with his own offended sense of propriety. McPherson interviews Bessie the maid, Laura's blue-collar champion, who would even defy the police to keep her mistress's memory pure. The actress Dorothy Adams is cloyingly adorable, if a little bit cringe. My apologies to the Bessie fans, but such characterizations were part and parcel with Hollywood films at the time. Clearly we are being given evidence that Laura was a wonderful as Waldo has made her out to be. This is reinforced in the living room scene in Laura's apartment where Mark is de facto hosting Waldo, Treadwell, and Shelby. The ulterior motive for this, of course, is so Mark can confront Shelby with the cheap whiskey found in Laura's fridge. But he seems ensconced in her trappings now. He has even made a bid for the portrait and Waldo castigates him for the revelation that he is interested in Laura's apartment. After he relinquishes the guest, Mark searches the apartment, holding Laura's bundled correspondences in his hand. He explores her bedroom, both closet and dresser. Andrews is brilliant here, the way he wrings his hands while holding the bundle, debating whether to open it or not, or how self-conscious he appears when he sees himself walking by the mirror. Andrews conveys the inner conflict with McPherson in his body language as he plays her music and pours himself a drink and crashes on her armchair. The inundation of Laura's attributes composed of her beauty and her behavior, shown through dialogue from the characters and through the flashback sequence, has already done its work on the professional Mark McPherson and we the audience. And then, she returns. McPherson allows his body to go through the motions of the shock caused by this turn of events and immediately transforms to that stoic, no-nonsense cop with a sense of integrity. He displays shame at having to go through her letters even, as if he has awakened from a dream. Dana Andrews again, showing so much with so little. Both Mark and we, the audience, know about Diane Redford. Her name has been dropped in relation to Shelby Carpenter, so we are able to put together that it was she who received the shotgun blast to the face. This is then diegetically confirmed by the coroner's report in the next scene. Both audience and the male protagonist are on equal levels of narrative agency, despite the abrupt change in direction. The twist is both jarring and exciting, as it should be, but does not take precedence over the story and the development of the characters. In fact, it complicates it. Laura's return to life solidifies that Mark has shown all the signs of obsessing over the case and his victim, and his arc effortlessly switches gears to that of another suitor. Waldo, who opens the film with his narration, in full control virtually on top of the world and the situation at large, in his Manhattan penthouse, dies amidst a hubristic final broadcast playing over the radio in Laura's apartment as he is gunned down by police. He walks into each room as if stepping on eggshells, casting aspersions at Mark McPherson and Treadwell and Shelby Carpenter, seeing himself as the white knight protecting Laura's memory or his ideal view of her anyway. This setting up Waldo for his great fall is achieved visually with fluid pans of Waldo's collection of art and antiquities either framed or mounted on the wall or encased in a glass cabinet. Waldo is a collector and Laura is the crown jewel of his collection. Joseph Lachelle's cinematography is, as mentioned, fluid, precise, assured as a tool in the visual storytelling he and Preminger are conveying to us. His use of that noir aesthetic of low-key lighting is minimal compared to the Maltese Falcon and other noirs. 
Naturalistic lighting distinguishes Laura from other noirs that I have seen. We see lush furnished apartments in the cold light of day with only minimal shadows cast on the actors in the frame. When the story calls for it, when Preminger and Lachelle call for it, that is, we see increased shadows in darkened apartments, sinister ambiences. Despite the shadowy nature of his characters, Laura is all about bringing the truth to light. Returning to Waldo, the flashback sequence demonstrates how Laura got under his taut skin, how he gave her advertising career the jolt it required via his patronage. But when the fires died out, he was fond enough of her to allow her freedoms but harbored insecurity and jealousy when it came to other men in her life. It is this unwillingness in him for him to find happiness outside of his sheltered sphere that reduces his intellect and sophistication to what could have been the awful cliché of the obsessed homicidal ex-boyfriend, but the layers of complexity of this erudite sugar daddy points to a deeper understanding of these human frailties. Regardless of the caliber of this archetype for Waldo, it came down to, if he can't have her, then no one can. He dispatched Laura in an act of cold, jealous rage. Only it wasn't Laura. Tall and slim, with an acidic tongue and controlled enunciation, Clifton Webb is the acting highlight of the film. Being vicious is the secret of his charm, Waldo Lidecker tells Laura in her advertising bullpen. And regarding Webb's performance, this is art imitating life. His voiceover pulls us into the story world. We enjoy his sarcasm, his witty bon mots. But as we learn more about Laura, we learn more about him. And we begin not to like what we see. Webb is masterful in presenting us this deeply insecure individual. His performance is borderline method acting. There is no histrionics in his craft, no traces of the theater whatsoever. We dismiss Waldo's callousness about others as it appears to be sheer affectation. But by the time he collapses upon Laura's return, and when McPherson confirms all of his fears by finding the shotgun inside the clock, we realize how easily an air of sophistication can mask a dark soul. Laura has motives to see her romantic rival Diane Redfern dead, Shelby Carpenter, who remains a seemingly sketchy character throughout, especially with his visits to Anne Treadwell, and Diane Redfern before, and after Laura's death transforms from suspect to romantic rival for McPherson. And despite the reveal of Lidecker in the final act, we can see that Laura has motives to see her romantic rival Diane Redfern dead. Shelby Carpenter, who remains a seemingly sketchy character throughout, especially with his visits to Anne Treadwell and Diane Redfern before and after Laura's death, transforms from suspect to romantic rival for McPherson, even receiving an unprofessional punch in the gut from that bastion of integrity. As Shelby, Vincent Price is a towering presence in the film, but as questionable we may find Price's Kentucky accent, he makes up for it by presenting the tall Shelby with an awkward gait, almost stumbling through life with his ne'er-do-well charm that forces him into circumstances he would otherwise extricate himself from. He is viewed by Lidecker as a scheming rake, desired by Treadwell as a boy toy, and as a charming oaf by Laura. Price is adept in conveying all three of these identities. Now we see that Anne Treadwell's angry defensive reaction towards any questioning about her relationship with Shelby earlier in the film speaks volumes when she tells Laura that she was contemplating taking her out of the picture so that she could remain with Shelby. Plot-wise, we wonder, did she kill Redfern? But Judith Anderson's raw, emotionally honest confession to Laura is enough for us to cross her out as a suspect. Waldo's character is aware of these minutiae and pokes and prods at the foibles of others whenever he is in Treadwell's presence. A pivotal scene in the film is when McPherson utilizes an interrogation room at the precinct, first of all to settle the score on Laura's innocence regarding Redfern's death and to confess his feelings to her. The precinct sequence stands out as the moment when we see McPherson dilute his obsession to something more pure, more romantic, when Laura reciprocates her feelings to him. 
He was both getting the girl and making headway to solving the case. Instinctively, the heroic detective that Waldo made him out to be in his earlier broadcast, not the man Waldo sneers at, uses his investigatory prowess towards what is logically where the evidence is pointing, Waldo Lidecker. He discovers the secret compartment in Waldo's grandfather clock and determines the duplicate in her, depart- in her apartment, the one that Waldo requested to be returned to him following her death in an earlier scene, also bears a secret compartment. Tierney and Andrew's chemistry in this scene is electric. We already felt it when he first sees her alive. We half smile at his chivalry when he brings her groceries, as if already her boyfriend picking up some food on his way home from work. Andrews has carried the script's mission statement to sell us on this conversion with a plum. And while it can be argued Laura is a little too forgiving of Mark for his behavior, as if she is missing the red flags of obsession from her time with Waldo, this is a weakness in the writing. Tyranny holds her own against Andrews. There is a thin ice to the position that it can be argued that McPherson switched from detective obsessed with his case to falling in love with the victim turned suspect is achieved with some suspension of disbelief, and contrary to that, to that I have stated the reasons why it comes very natural in terms of the screenplay. What is more problematic is how quickly Laura falls for Mark. We as an audience buy into Mark's infatuation because we have witnessed him reach that event horizon, and given we have seen we have and given we have been shown that they are both persons of integrity, their match makes perfect sense. But I feel by the end we should only see the kindling of this romantic pairing instead of being at the point near its consummation. It's clear the demands of the Hollywood industrial complex required a romantic happy ending for hero and heroine. How about a wistful look, Mr. Preminger, or a close-up of them holding hands, a promise for the future, something near the subtlety in screenwriting and direction shown so expertly in the first half of the film? To expand on that, think of all the clues. The grandfather clocks, Waldo's behavior, the initial assumption that it was Laura who had been killed, the name-dropping of Diane, Waldo's request to return his property from Laura's apartment, including the duplicate of his own grandfather clock, the return of Laura, Waldo's collapse, Shelby returning the shotgun to Laura's cabin. All of these clues have been presented to us throughout the film, and never do we question a twist in the narrative because the final revelation of the killer is dependent on these clues being planted for our consumption. And well-planted they were. But the murder weapon, the smoking gun, is soon found. First by Mark and his detective skills inside the duplicate clock in Laura's apartment, which is put back in place and then recovered by an unknowing Waldo as he returns to Laura's apartment to finish the job. He is thwarted in his efforts, firing his shotgun haphazardly before being shot himself, destroying the face of the grandfather clock, revealing the machinery behind the facade has halted, as has the mechanics of the story wound at the beginning of the film and cranking through the 80-plus minutes to its inevitable, thematically sound conclusion. If the gears of this metaphorical clock grinded from time, it is proof that even the hardest amount of precision or obsession, if you will, by a director does not always result in perfection, but it does give us something very close to it. For the plot, I give Laura four and a half. Like clockwork, with the exception of this reviewer not falling 100% for Mark and Laura's romance by the end of the film, Laura is witty and playful, a genuine entertainment that smoothly transforms into a cautionary tale of obsession and cognizant of all the horrors that entails. Performances, I give four and a half. Preminger was wise shaking things up by making Waldo Lidecker our unreliable narrator, who was endlessly amusing with his witticisms until he was not. Clifton Webb delivers a fantastic nuanced performance. Dana Andrews nearly reaches Webb's caliber in his thoughtful and conflicted portrayal of Detective Mark McPherson. Having seen Jean Tierney reach greater thespian heights and leave her to heaven, and people tell me she is equally good in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, 
She stands strong against Andrews and Webb, despite coming off superficial. But this is more the fault of the writing. Tierney feels programmed into the damsel role and seems content playing a lively MacGuffin. Vincent Price and Judith Anderson offer strong support for the leads. If you can look past the conceit of Price playing a gawky Kentuckian from sharecropper stock, that is. For atmosphere, I give it a full 5 out of 5. The sweeping score haunts the proceedings, accompanied by an equally haunting portrait emanating from record players, from restaurant bands, all the way to the end credits. Those organic pans of the camera create a feeling of rising tension, combined with the minimal use of noir aesthetics. Less is more seems to be Preminger's mantra here. And to Daryl F. Zanuck's eternal chagrin, he's absolutely right. Even the trappings of horror are pulled up at the very end in the feel of the direction given to the final sequence with Lidecker in Laura's apartment. So 14 out of 15 is my final mark for Laura. I consider it not just one of my favorite film noirs, but also probably one of my favorite films. It is eminently rewatchable. Uh, you can see things every time you watch it. I do still maintain uh, to point out the flaws that I think are in the film, things that could have been touched on a little bit to make it perfect. But there it is, 14 out of 15. I think that is pretty good. I want to thank everyone for listening to Lighting the Pipes and to Lighting the Pipes Noir, this show and our previous episode as well. If you have anything you want to add to the history of the production of Laura or any corrections, please let us know on our Instagram, pipes underscore pod. Or if you have any suggestions or requests, let us know. There's a lot of film noir out there and chances are I haven't seen them all. In fact, I positively guarantee that I haven't, but I would be more than happy to check them out. So until next time, my name is Joshua Taylor. And this is Lighting the Pipes Noir.